Good afternoon, everyone. It is my profound honor to be uh, introducing our second annual Greg Coleman Lecture, uh, and, and just delighted and privileged to be invited by the Federal Society to do this. As some of you know, Allison and I jealously guard our weekend family time. Uh, you might say we apply strict scrutiny to any situation that would take us away. Uh, we need a compelling reason, of course, to be away from our kids on a Saturday, but, but certainly uh, Federal Society is a compelling reason. The movie Hardball, I'm sorry, the movie Moneyball, I've already started off poorly. <laughs> the movie Moneyball tells the story of Oakland A's manager, Billy Bean, a character played by Brad Pitt, who challenged the establishment when it came to how baseball teams are managed. He put into action a management philosophy that he thought was right and pure. And for doing so, he was condemned in the media and all across the sport. In one of my favorite scenes at the end of the movie, he sits down with the owner of the Red Sox. And the owner tells him this, I know you're taking it in the teeth out there, but the first guy through the wall, he always gets bloodied, always. This is threatening, not just a way of doing business, but in their minds, it's threatening the game. But what it's really threatening is their livelihoods. It's threatening their jobs. It's threatening the way they do things. And every time that happens, whether it's the government or the way of doing business or whatever it is, the people who are holding the reins, who have their hands on the switch, they go crazy. This same statement could have been said to either of the two men we honor here today. I first met Greg Coleman during my first year out of law school, and during his first year as our inaugural Solicitor General. Although Greg was many years ahead of me in terms of his career, we became friends. And every time I had an important decision to make in life, he was always there to mentor and to counsel, as he did with so many young lawyers. Throughout his career, he took on legal causes that undoubtedly generated criticism, if not condemnation. But he pursued them anyway, because he believed they were right and worthy of vigorous defense. Shortly after the Supreme Court announced its decision in Lawrence versus Texas, uh, this was back when I worked on Capitol Hill, uh, Senator John Cornyn uh, said that he wanted to convene a hearing, a congressional hearing, on the implications of the decision for the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. And he warned me that, look, you know, we're going to do this hearing, but most lawyers are not going to want to testify on such a controversial topic. But he assured me not to worry. The hearing's going to work because he knew one person who he was sure would be willing to state his views clearly, unabashedly, and let the chips fall where they may. That man was his solicitor, General Col uh, Greg Coleman. Senator Cornyn was right. Countless lawyers turned down his invitation to testify. In fact, a number of Capitol Hill staffers actually didn't want to have anything to do with the hearing either. Greg was one of the very few who agreed to show up, and his testimony was powerful and persuasive. Over the years, Greg would take on case after case that would generate no shortage of opprobrium, at some personal cost, I might add, as those who knew him know too well. Greg was a fighter, but first and foremost, he was a family man. And despite his extraordinary legal career, 
the most important legacy he leaves is his amazing family. His wife Stephanie is here, along with his son Reed and his new wife Betsy. Would you all please stand so that we can recognize you? I will never forget the day before Thanksgiving in 2010. Allison and I have an annual tradition of picking out our Christmas tree every year on that day. And we had just picked out our, our beautiful Douglas fir when I got the call that Greg had just died in a plane crash, along with Stephanie's mother and brother. Every day, I'm sorry, every year, the day before Thanksgiving, Allison and I remember to thank God for the life of Greg Coleman and to do everything we can to live out our lives as he would have wanted us to. No one exemplifies Greg's fighting spirit and passion for the law and the Constitution better than our honored speaker today. In fact, the first time I ever met our speaker today, that's exactly what he was doing, fighting for the Constitution. Uh, I was a law student, he was a young lawyer. We were both invited to speak about certain constitutional controversies at the Justice Department Civil Rights Division uh, during the late 1990s. To this day, I still regard it as the single most important speaking invitation I've ever had the honor of receiving. Because ever since that day, he has advised me and mentored me at every step of my legal career, as he has done, like Greg, with countless lawyers and law students over the past two and a half decades. Without him, I would not be standing before you today or sitting on a federal court. Today, he is a United States Senator, uh, prudence probably dictates that I not say too much about his political career, but I will talk about his legal career because he has been fighting for the Constitution his entire life, well before he filed for elective office. Like any good originalist, he wanted to start his legal career clerking for a principal judge who was committed to upholding the Constitution, and he ended up clerking for two, Chief Justice William Rehnquist and Judge Michael Ludig. But even before all that, he memorized the Constitution in high school and wrote about the historical origins of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments for his undergraduate thesis at Princeton. And as an attorney, he set the gold standard for what an originalist can do to serve the public, whether it's his pro bono, pro bono work in private practice, to serving as a senior Justice Department official, and as our state's longest serving Solicitor General. He taught me, and countless others, a profoundly important lesson, originalism, may be controversial in some quarters. It may be easier to be a fair weather originalist, to do what is popular than what is right. But when you swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, being an originalist is not just a slogan, it's a job requirement. And this is a duty he takes seriously, as well as gleefully. Uh, among the nine cases he argued before the Supreme Court uh, include some of the most important uh, cases of our time. Close watchers of the court had uh, indicated that he had delivered the best argument in any voting rights case in modern history. In another case, he defended the state of Texas against the State Department, the World Court, the European, European Union, and numerous foreign nations. And he won in a complex, multifaceted constitutional battle that is not only cited in every con law casebook around, around the country, but cited in multiple chapters covering federalism, separation of powers, foreign affairs, and criminal procedure. But legal prowess is just one element of who he is. He is a devoted husband, 
a doting father, a dutiful son. He is also one of the most loyal and caring friends I will ever have the privilege to know. During my own Senate confirmation hearing, however, I discovered that there were limits to that loyalty. <laughs> when he introduced me to the committee, he described me as, and I quote, only the second best appellate lawyer in the whole household. <laughs> you know, they, they say the confirmation hearings, the, the, the process can be hard on the nominee, but honestly, I've never heard of a senator slighting a nominee they were supporting. Now, I'll admit, he is absolutely right. If you know Allison, you know I am demonstrably the worst appellate lawyer in my own home. Or if you met our daughter, Georgia, uh, she's, she's become quite the advocate as well. But still, I will never forget his slight, and now it's payback time. <laughs> First, as devoted a public servant as he is, he is nothing compared to his bride, Heidi. If you look up the term marrying up in the dictionary, you should see his picture before you see mine. <laughs> Second, he's not exactly the best basketball player either. <laughs> Although he recently demonstrated on national TV that there may be someone even worse. <laughs> Last thing, I said that I would not say much about his political career. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and take the risk and say this. For a long time, our speaker today was known primarily only to his fellow Texans. But as you all know, not too long ago, he was launched into the national spotlight. He made a huge nationwide splash and stirred up a vigorous debate as Americans from coast to coast saw what this man was truly capable of. I'm talking, of course, about the beard. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our bearded as well as brilliant United States Senator, Ted Cruz. Jim, thank you very much I, for that uh, unique introduction. Um, and I will say, insofar as relative appellate prowess in the Ho household goes, um, I will make a plea, as is fitting in a Federalist gathering, gathering, to originalism, and John Adams in particular, who said, facts are stubborn things. Um, it is wonderful to be here with so many friends. It is wonderful to be here with the Federalist Society, to be here with so many people whom one can and should address as your honor. Uh, and it is wonderful also to have a chance to celebrate a dear friend, Greg Coleman. What I want to talk to you all about today is ideas, the power of ideas, the power of ideas to transform the world. And I want to focus on both the Federalist Society, but also on the Texas Solicitor General's Office as two examples of ideas having wildly transformative power. Greg Coleman was a trailblazer 
He was the first Solicitor General in Texas. John Cornyn was Attorney General, and he decided to create the Office of Solicitor General, recruited Greg to come in. Now, many of y'all now, I was talking before the lunch, are talking about how OSG now is, is, is a force. That was not the case when Greg came in. It was not a reform that was welcome and celebrated within the AG's office. The tradition for decades, maybe even more than a century, was that within the AG's office, whichever trial lawyer had handled the trial, handled the appeal. And that was true all the way up to the US Supreme Court sometimes. As a consequence of that, that meant the state's appellate litigation was very, very uneven. Sometimes, if you had a particularly gifted trial lawyer who also had deep familiarity with appellate litigation and constitutional nuances, you could see some terrific arguments. But sometimes you could see some less than terrific arguments. And Greg came in to form this new office with significant institutional resistance. And what he set out doing was recruiting a cadre of incredibly talented young lawyers who would take on some of the hardest, some of the most challenging issues in the state and represent the state ably in courts of appeals, both state and federal. Now, I got to tell you, there are challenges to recruiting lawyers. I can tell you at the time, the average salary for an assistant SG, if I remember correctly, was $55,000. Having come in after Greg, I can tell you recruiting young lawyers to come in and make less than a legal secretary can make at a law firm, uh, that, that took some uh, salesmanship. But Greg's leadership made it happen because Greg inspired the lawyers in that office. Having come in after Greg, I will tell you, you talk about big shoes to fill. The lawyers in that office revered Greg as someone who would dive into the facts of a case, dive into the law, and wrestle with how to get it right. Greg was also fearless. That is a rare characteristic among lawyers and, for that matter, among people. Not saying lawyers are people, by the way. <laughs> One of my favorite stories about Greg is when he was leading the Supreme Court practice at a large New York law firm. The head of that firm was in the process of sending out emails to all the lawyers in the firm. This was at the time, this was during the Bush 43 administration, this was at the time you had lawyers representing pro bono terrorists in Gitmo. The chairman of the firm was sending out emails saying it is the noblest endeavor for any lawyer to represent an unpopular cause, a reviled cause. Shortly thereafter, Greg took on a case representing municipal district here in Austin challenging Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And suddenly his partners at the firm lost their friggin' minds. I mean, their heads was exploding. How could you do this? And Greg, being a, a shy, timid man, 
cut and pasted from the chairman of the firm's emails and sent them back, it is the highest thing any lawyer can do to represent an unpopular, a reviled cause. Well, that didn't go over too well <laughs> in Manhattan. And so Greg said, fine, I'm out of here. And you want to know how Greg started his own law firm? It was because his partners couldn't handle that he had the courage to take on a position, a litigating position, that wasn't politically correct. Let me ask each of you to think, when was the last time you felt strongly about an issue to risk your entire livelihood, your entire income, and to walk away from your job? And I don't even think, now, Stephanie may tell me otherwise, I, didn't, I don't, you didn't even get the sense Greg agonized about this. He just did what was right. You know, when I came in to OSG, Greg had started the office. I was 32 years old. It was a fairly terrifying venture. At the time, I'd argue, only argued two cases in my life. And Greg was a mentor. He would take time. We had a regular lunch that was Greg and Don Willett and Patrick O'Daniel. The four of us would have lunch probably once a month, once every other month in town, all around town. Now, I will say, those of us who are government employees, we did make the private practice folks pick up the bill. <laughs> I mean, we weren't crazy about it. We were like... <laughs> but if you think of the power of ideas, that small office that was started in the Texas AG's office has since grown, has since institutionalized, has since, when I came in, based on what Greg had built, Greg Abbott, then the Attorney General, his mandate to me was look across the country. If there are conservative principles we can fight and defend, if we can make a difference defending the Constitution and Bill of Rights, go do it. What an amazing job description. And if you look at now, the Texas Solicitor General's office and the succession of SGs who've come in and led that office, and for that matter, the number of alums from the SG's office who now wear robes on a daily basis, and that's not just because they have curious sartorial decisions, uh, is an amazing and impressive thing. That is the power of ideas and commitment to those ideas. Federalist Society likewise was started by a handful of law students. I remember I've been a member of the Federalist Society for more than half of my life. I joined FedSoc as a 1L. And if you look at the ideas, I'd say there are two principal ideas right at the heart of FedSoc. By the way, the left doesn't understand this gathering. The left thinks this is a partisan gathering. There is ideological diversity in the Federalist Society. You've got conservatives, you've got libertarians, you've got a lot of libertarians. You've got paleocons, which I've never been able to figure out what they believe. But the name invokes dinosaurs, so it's kind of cool. Um, but this is a society that's committed, number one, to the debate on ideas, to engaging on subset of ideas. And I've got to say, by the way, believing in the dialectic, believing that you can actually have a rational discussion, that is in itself an incredibly conservative and subversive idea. 
You look at the mandarins who want run so many of our universities who are terrified of any dissenting view. If you're actually confident in what you believe, you shouldn't be remotely frightened to engage and defend those principles on the merits. But if you look at the two legal principles that I would say are right at the heart of the founding of the Federalist Society, originalism and textualism, it's worth noting, and for those who are younger in this room, that may seem like, well, of course, the place to start with a statutory interpretation case is the text. I encourage you to go back and read statutory interpretation cases in the 1960s and the 1970s, where over and over again, judges would begin with, the legislative history, and here's what's in the committee report, and you would read whole opinions and never actually see the statutory text cited. And the notion there were a handful of trailblazers, one of the greatest was the late great Justice Scalia, who made the argument for textualism, and it's worth remembering, when that started, that was a distinct minority view. Likewise, originalism, the notion that, look, in the 60s and 70s, for that matter, when I was in law school, it was conventional wisdom that the Constitution was a living document, that it encompassed really whatever a judge or jurist wanted it to. And in fact, what was constitutional was coterminous with whatever was right and just and you believed in, and therefore what was unconstitutional was coterminous with whatever policy was not right and not just and you didn't believe in. That the distinction between the two didn't exist. And I would say the Federalist Society has had a remarkable degree of success. Shifting the debate. If you go and look now, every judge in a statutory opinion case starts with the text. Now, not all of them end with the text. But that's moving the Overton window. Every judge now looks to the original understanding of constitutional text. Go and read Justice Stevens' dissent in the Heller case. He, he proffers that dissent on originalist ground. Now, I think Justice Stevens got it wrong. But go look at the terms on which he is fighting it. The power of ideas have changed how ju judges do their job. Now look, at the heart of this, why should one want to be a textualist? Why should one want to be an originalist? Why should one want judges who are textualists and originalists? That is, at the end of the day, a fundamental question and a divide of judicial humility versus judicial arrogance. And I'm gonna suggest to you there are four reasons why this battle of ideas matters. Let's start with number one, democracy. Who decides? Look, the battle between those that want justices in power to decide whatever policy view they believe is ultimately an abdication of the democratic foundations of our country. Now listen, some conservatives, when you talk about democracy, You'll get folks who'll say, well, you know, we're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. People are very adamant about that. 
I actually am not inclined to run away from democracy at all. We are a country, yes, we're not a pure democracy. We're not, we're not in Athens gathering as a city-state and voting on each position. And yes, there is a role and an important role for representatives. But this is a country that was built on democratic values. And I think we as conservatives, as lovers of liberty, should not run away from that. Democratic values, because democratic values come from the proposition that sovereignty doesn't come from a king or queen or monarch. Rather, sovereignty comes from we the people. If it is we the people who are sovereign, who are lending power to government for a short period of time, then democratic values are how we should resolve disputed policy issues. I remember some years ago, I went on the Stephen Colbert show. Don't ask me why on earth I did that. <laughs> but I was on the Colbert show and he was coming after me uh, on the issue of gay marriage. And I don't remember exactly what his questions were, but it was essentially, you know, why do you hate anyone who's gay? That's a paraphrase, but not much of a paraphrase. I remember I told him then, I said, listen, Stephen, I, I believe marriage is the union of one man and one woman. But I also believe in the Constitution. And under the Constitution, marriage is a question that's left to the states. There are 50 state legislatures. They have the authority to define marriage, and that's a question that has varied over time, but that's the right form to decide it. And Colbert's crowd, being the tolerant, accepting crowd that they are, began loudly booing me. Also some hissing. Hissing, it's such a great innovation, the hissing. You know, it's almost like those on the left are balloons with air seeping out of their heads. But I actually tried to pause and said, look, okay, I get, you may disagree with me on this policy issue, and that's fine. But my question to you is, if we disagree on this policy issue, how should that be resolved? Do you want it resolved by convincing your fellow citizens, your fellow voters, your elected officials, your view is right? Or do you simply want to empower five unelected lawyers wearing robes in Washington, D.C.? Who in their right mind would want to be governed by five all-powerful philosopher kings? Because you know what? One day you may win that policy fight. If you got five who agree with you, great, wait till you're on the other side of that. Till you got five who disagree with you on policy. I think judicial humility is about democracy. It is about trusting the people to make difficult decisions, and those decisions will change. Second thing, diversity. Once again, look, this is this is a value that the hard left has tried to subsume. They're so wonderfully diverse. Law school faculties are wonderfully diverse. They have both Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. <laughs> but to be honest, when it comes to diversity, diversity, number one, recognizes people can disagree. People can disagree in good faith and engage on the substance, but part of the beauty of federalism of saying it's up to the states, is that different states are going to reach different answers. Look, we've got a lot of issues in our country that divide us. It's a divided time. It's an angry time. But if you respect federalism, 
you recognize that the people of California are going to adopt different rules than the people of Texas, thank God. And that's okay. There are 50 states, Justice Lewis Brandeis referred to federalism as laboratories of democracy. You would expect different policies to be enacted. So on something like marijuana, by the way, the brownies here, I hope you enjoy them. But on something like marijuana, my view is that's an issue on which reasonable people can disagree. Personally, I don't favor marijuana legalization. But I also think reasonable people can disagree on that, and so my view is that's a question for the states. Leave it to the states. Some states may decide one way, other states may decide another way. And you can have candidates running on their platform, whether it is a chicken in every pot or in Colorado, pot in every chicken. But that allows for diversity. Third principle, predictability. One of the great questions in law is the meta debate between rules and standards. Justice Scalia famously wrote a law review, the rule of law is a law of rules. Now, there are downsides to rules. If you have a clear, bright line, it means there's going to be a case where it is unfair. Wherever the line is, whatever it is, there's going to be someone just a scooch on the other side of the line. And nobody likes to see unfairness. On the other hand, if the test in law is a standard, is a balancing test where to different eyes of different beholders, the outcome is different. That can address, well, let's be perfectly fair. Here it's fair for this person. Let's do something else fair for this person. But try predicting what the outcome is. One of the great virtues of judges exercising humility to say, I will follow the statute, the text of the statute, even if I don't like it, or I will follow the Constitution and how the, the, the original understanding of the Constitution is that it gives predictable outcomes. Most of us in this room have advised clients. Advising clients can be frustrated when, when you have judges for whom law is not a central determinant of what their outcome is going to be. If you have judges that are following the law, you can look at the statute, you can look at the Constitution, you can look at the case law and say, okay, here is what's likely to be the outcome. But if you have judges empowered to do what they think is fair, it means that predictability is a significant casualty of that. Chief Justice John Roberts famously invoked the analogy of an umpire. Well, let's imagine for a second an umpire. How many of us would enjoy playing baseball if the definition of the strike zone changed with every pitch? One day the strike zone is shoulders to knees. The next day it's only at the waist. How many of you would enjoy pitching if you don't know what's in and out of the strike zone? How many would you enjoy batting? The ball there, do I swing at it or not? Well, I don't know if it's a strike or not, so I don't know how to conduct myself. There is a virtue to predictability. Because if you know what the rules are, it means people can order their behavior. And the fourth benefit, 
to judicial humility is accountability. Look, let's start with the proposition government can get things wrong. I know that's a shocking statement. A good friend of mine once suggested we'd be better off if the First Amendment had ended after the fifth word. Congress shall make no law. <laughs> we know that human behavior is fallible. And we know that government service, for whatever reason, seems to be a particular magnet to the fallible. If that is the case, then the question is, what do you do if the policy is wrong? And I'm going to suggest to you that having the decision in the democratic arena, and in fact with principles of federalism, also having the decision at the lowest level of government possible, so at the national level, at the federal level, only when necessary, if possible at the state level, and even better at the local level. It gives the citizenry accountability. You know, Austin just passed a new homelessness policy. Their city council's hearing about it. Funny what happens when you suddenly have a bunch of people camping out in your doorstep and defecating on streets. By the way, when Occupy Wall Street was happening years ago, I was doing a Hannity show. And I talked about at the time, Occupy Wall Street was pretty rowdy, and they, they were, among other things, defecating in public streets. And I said at the time, look, even my three-year-old, which is how old Caroline was, even my three-year-old knows not to poop on public streets. I gotta tell you, that was as excited as Caroline ever got. Because she saw that and said, Daddy just said poop on TV. <laughs> that really earned me some props at home. But look, whether the Austin City Council got this right or wrong, that's being debated right here on the ground with Austin citizens saying, you know what? We've seen some of the cities in California, we've seen. San Francisco, we know where this slippery slope ends. You know, if it were a federal policy, good luck trying to change it. Good luck trying to talk to some nameless, faceless bureaucrat in a windowless office in Washington, D.C. Or even more than that, if it were a federal judge with life tenure simply decreeing the rule, good luck trying to change that. If you believe in human fallibility, then you want public policy decisions to be accountable. That when people get the decision wrong, that there's an ability for the citizenry to change that outcome. Every one of those principles are principles that as Americans we should hold dear. I want to make a final point. And I'm going to open it up and take a few questions. Men and women in this room are smart, serious thinkers. You're engaged in the battle of ideas. I want to encourage you to engage more. And engage in the public sphere. Now, this is not a call for you all to go run for office. This is a call for you to join more vigorously tomorrow than today, 
the battleground of ideas. Margaret Thatcher famously said, first you win the argument, then you win the vote. Our country right now is in the middle of an enormous argument about the direction of this nation. And we're not talking about minor disagreements. You look at the Democratic debates with Tweedledum and Tweedledumber. And we are seeing a fundamental argument about whether to go in the direction of socialism or go in the direction of the American free enterprise system. We're seeing a fundamental argument. Look, I only watched a few minutes of the debate the other night uh, because I'm protected by the Eighth Amendment's protections of cruel and unusual punishment. But I did watch the exchange where my colleague Kamala Harris said as president she would decree to go after everyone's guns. And Joe Biden came back with a radical notion, well, there is this thing called the Constitution that kind of limits what you can do. And if you recall her response, she laughed at him. Said, I don't want to hear can't, I want to hear yes, we can. You don't talk about a fundamental debate. Is it simply whatever an elected official asserts that shall be the rule? So I want to encourage you to engage in the battle of ideas and, and reach, don't just reach each other. Reach young people. Reach Hispanics and African Americans and suburban women and people who the mainstream media is not engaging with. You know, earlier this week, I had a debate with Alyssa Milano. That was not what I anticipated doing this week. <laughs> but look, I will credit her. She engaged. Where did that come from? That came from a week ago. Last Sunday, she sent out a tweet and said, can someone tell me where in the Bible is a God-given right to own a gun? So she sent out that tweet. Look, I could have easily ignored that. I could have very easily ignored that. Or I could have easily responded with ridicule. But I decided to try to do something different. So I, I responded with what ended up being a 10-tweet series. Where I said, you raise an important question. And one that should be addressed without the snark of Twitter. So, of course, there's nothing in the Bible about modern-day firearms. But what is in the Bible is the right to life and the right to liberty. And since she asked for a scriptural basis, I said, look, self-defense, there are many, many references in scripture, but if you look at Exodus 22.2, it talks about if someone comes into your house at night seeking to do harm to your family and you defend your family and you take a life that it's not murder. Now, actually, the next verse says if they come into your house in the daytime and you kill them, that it is murder if it's not self-defense. And I went on to say, look, that same principle is reflected in the Declaration of Independence, these rights that we hold self-evident, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's memorialized in the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. 
And I tried to make the case, listen, the Second Amendment, it's not about hunting. It's not about target shooting. It's about the fundamental right in each every one of us has to defend our lives, to defend our homes, to defend our families, that if someone comes seeking to do harms to our babies, we have a right to defend them. Now, I also pointed out that some of the earliest and most aggressive gun control laws we have in this country were Jim Crow laws advocated for by the KKK because disarming African Americans meant that they, their families and their homes were vulnerable to violent assault from domestic terrorists like the Klan. Now listen, I'm a Texan, we've all been horrified by the mass murders we've seen. But what I suggested in that tweet storm is we need to engage on substance about how to address them. I believe the right way to do it is focus on bad guys, felons, fugitives, those with dangerous mental illness, not stripping away the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens. So that exchange, I, I thought, I hope did some good. Well, she came back and said, well, I'm going to be in D.C. next week. Why don't we talk about it? She said, let's do it in the spirit of 1 Peter 4, 8, which talks about love bringing us together. And she said, if we live stream it, everyone can see firsthand your BS. <laughs> she didn't abbreviate BS. So I responded and said, I'm happy to. Let's sit down and meet. So she came this week, and we set it up in live stream. We had an hour and a half discussion. Now, at the end of the day, not sure either one of us were dramatically changed in our views. And there were some pretty hot moments, I will admit, live streaming the whole exchange. That had the potential to go very, very badly. But I do think, I hope it was valuable to see just a positive civil discourse. To see people who might be disagreeing on an issue coming together with, with, with basic respect for each other's decency and humanity. If we can come and reason together, and I said, look, problem with this debate, like so many others, is both sides tends to believe, tend to believe horrible caricatures about the other. If we can start with the premise that all of us want to reduce and prevent mass murders, all of us want to protect people's, innocent people's lives, then we can have a conversation about what policies are most likely to produce that outcome. But if we start with the premise that half of America wants to see people suffer and die, that doesn't yield a good outcome. I want to encourage each of you, look, this is an incredibly talented gathering of men and women across the state. You have the ability to engage in these debates. If you believe, as I know you do, powerfully, in the principles of the Constitution and Bill of Rights, now is a time people desperately need to hear and engage and engage with a joyful spirit. It's actually a wonderful opportunity because many on the left are, are so angry right now. How many radical leftists does it take to screw in a light bulb? That's not funny! Given that anger, given that bitterness, don't respond in kind. Respond with joy. Respond with laughter. You know, a couple of months ago, someone tweeted out a meme, Ted Cruz ate my son. 
I retweeted it. I said, he was delicious. <laughs> Be a happy warrior. Freedom works. And so I want to encourage you to go out and defend the freedom that our country was built on. Thank you. All right, so happy to do a couple of questions. It's a FedSoc group, so I know somebody has something to say. <laughs> All right, so Charles Eskrich, soon to be Judge Eskrich, uh, asked, how do you do it without notes? Okay, you tell stories. You start with the principle, I mean, I, actually, human beings, we live in a world of stories. So, so some of the very best, I remember when I was a kid, I, I got very involved in, in a group in Houston, the Free Enterprise Institute, and, and that's where I studied the Constitution, studied free market economics. The guy who led it was a guy named Rollin Story, who was a wonder, wonderful man. He's since passed away, but he was a little man who was the best natural public speaker I've ever seen. He was probably all of, I don't know, Mr. Story was maybe 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, and he was a delightfully cheerish, impish man. I remember him telling me, he said, the very best speakers in the world, if there are a thousand people in the room, they feel like you're sitting in a cafe talking to them across a cup of coffee. They just talk to people. And so, look, that's a lot of what I try to do is I try to tell stories, I try to engage people and just have fun. And um, although I will say, all right, since we've got a lot of litigators in this room, I, I, I will say, so in college, as you know, I was a debater. Um, I was one of the cool kids. <laughs> um, and, and in college debate, um, first couple of years I did debate, freshman and sophomore years, I didn't use notes. I would just get up in whatever the debate round was, and I'd, I'd get up and I'd present present the argument, and actually, look, I mean, it was fairly unusual in college debate, and so you'd get judges going, holy cow, no notes, and so they would, they would be impressed by that. I actually found, and I changed how I did it ju junior year, because although I could do it and could do an effective job, I'd get maybe three or four points, but I wouldn't get the level of subtlety and nuance that you can do if you have tight notes in front of you. Um, so junior and senior years, I use notes. Because not only could you have three or four points, you could, you could get into much more detailed issues. Fast forward to being a litigator, I spend a lot of time putting my argument notebook together with tabs on everything and being able to flip. Now, it doesn't mean you're reading it. <laughs> Allison, we have sat side by side my argument notebooks. I'm a little bit like Gollum and my precious. <laughs> but it enabled you to flip over um, so, an example from a Supreme Court argument, uh, Kennedy versus Louisiana, a case I argued is Texas SG, dealing with constitutionality of capital punishment for really egregious child rapists. Um, Texas was an amicus supporting Louisiana law, horrible facts of what had happened there of a 
man who'd horribly raped a seven-year-old girl. Um, in that case, we were talking about evolving standards of decency. Um, and Justice Stevens asks in that oral argument, says, well, haven't evolving standards of decency always moved in one direction? Haven't they always gotten more lenient? Now, as it so happened, that was a question we had anticipated. So I flipped over uh, to, to a quotation from Blackstone, where Blackstone talked about how, how at British common law, um, the law for actually child rape had been lessened from capital punishment under William the Conqueror uh, to removal of the eyes and the testicles. A kinder, gentler William the Conqueror, as I described. <laughs> but after they implemented that, they discovered some years later an increase in child rape, and so they reverted to the old standard of capital punishment because the, the previous leniency had not worked. Now, I'll confess, I didn't have that quote memorized, but it helped being able to flip over and read from Blackstone. The smart out comment was, was ad-libbed, but every, all the rest of it was the quote. And so look, there's some value to having that, but if you're telling stories, the basic narrative you can do. Pray. So the question is, when's the game with Andrew Yang? Um, I don't know. Um, so a couple of days ago, Andrew Yang, preparing for the Democratic debate, put up a video of him at the basketball gym shooting, shooting around. It was actually an eight-foot rim, dunking on the eight-foot rim. Um, and somebody tweeted, all right, when's the Cruz Yang hoops game? Um, to which I tweeted back, sorry, you got to be at least 5% in the polls before we're playing hoops. <laughs> but Yang came back at me and he found some national poll that had him at 5%. <laughs> So I was looking at actually from the video, it looks like he's a pretty good shot. He can dunk on an eight-foot rim, which, Pre, you and I have played hoops. You, you know my vertical is about three inches. Um, and so I said, all right, you're taller than I am. You're a good shot, and you can at least dunk on some rims. So bring it on. So we're going to play. Um, I suggested playing yesterday. I was actually in Houston, more than happy to play yesterday. Um, our team and his team haven't coordinated a time or place yet, but I am eager to do it. And, and I suspect within about 90 seconds, I'll discover if I have any prayer of winning. Uh, if I don't, you can imagine um, I, I'm just going to be a smart aleck for the whole game and, and, and let him drain threes on me. But if I have a prayer on, of winning, it, 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 it may be uh, more vigorously contested. So great question, Kelly asked, uh, what's my prediction for how many judges will be confirmed? Well, this last week, we just, just passed 150 new federal judges in two and a half years. And that includes 19 new federal judges to date in the state of Texas.
and, and when it comes to legacies, legacies of the Trump administration, legacies of Republican majority in the Senate, I think there are few, if any, more significant. And, and, and let me take a minute just to talk about some of, the, some of the new judges we have, especially in Texas, and we got a whole bunch here today. Listen, we've had wonderful, uh, extraordinary judges in Texas, like Judge Smith and Judge Jones, who've been lions for a long, long time. But I got to tell you, in the last couple of years, they've gotten some serious, serious reinforcements. And, and I could not be more proud. If you look at the judges that have been appointed, especially in Texas, they're young, they're smart, they're principled, they're constitutionalists. The president promised to appoint judges in the mold of Scalia or Thomas. And I got to say nationally, but especially in Texas, I think we've done a remarkable job delivering on that promise. And, and as, I look, as I look at the Fifth Circuit, it's actually a wonderful dynamic to see smart principled jurists who are superstars, who are national superstars, and mark my word, five years from now, I think we'll be even bigger judicial superstars. Now, that doesn't mean taking over policy issues and decreeing outcomes. It means, and as every one of these judges I asked, I asked them directly. I did not ask them to be a conservative judge. I did not ask them to be a Republican judge. Both privately and publicly, every one of these judges I've asked, promise me you will always, always, always be faithful to the law, be faithful to the Constitution, regardless of what the policy or politics is. I think that is an incredible legacy, and it's a legacy Texas is going to be benefiting from 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years from now. Now, how many will be confirmed? I don't know. I can tell you this. I talked with the majority leader just this week, and the majority leader said, before we leave the end of next year, we are clearing every single nominee that is pending in the Senate before we go home if we have to be sitting there at December 31st, 2020. about the people who 
just dig it. They don't give back. And we need to worry about the people that sacrifice because when I decided to go back to school at 44 years old, my husband had to sacrifice a lot just to let me do this. So it's not fair. And I even tweeted and posted on Facebook that if it's going to be that way, I would like a refund. Well, let me say thank you for sharing your story. And, and going back to something we were saying earlier, there's a power to stories that, that, that connects with people and, 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 and that resonates in a way that just abstract figures do not. Um, I agree with you. Um, on, when it comes to immigration, I've said many times my views can be summed up in four words. Legal, good. Illegal, bad which I think the vast majority of Texans and Americans agree with, that there is a right way to come to this country, that you stand in line, that you follow the rules, you come here legally. And I think we need to secure the borders and at the same time welcome and celebrate legal immigrants who come, come to achieve the American dream. Um, th th that, is, that is a powerful thing. You know, I was introduced by, by my dear friend Jim Ho, who I see has bailed out on my talk because he thought it was boring. Um, oh, you moved over there. All right. <laughs> but look, Jim came as an immigrant to this country from Taiwan when he was one year old. What an incredible testament of the opportunity of, of this land, that, that, that someone that comes from abroad as a child can become a, a, a court of appeals judge following the Constitution and law for the entire country. That's, that's the story of Texas, that's the story of America, and I think it's important, and you're right, legal immigrants often get left out of this debate. You know, right across the street from where we are is the TCBY. Many of you know where it is. Um, you decided the brownies were a little bit too on edge for you, so TCBY is there instead. So, some of you all have heard me tell my dad's story before of coming to Texas with nothing, with $100 in his underwear, um, washing dishes, making 50 cents an hour. What you may not know is that's where he washed dishes. That TCBY used to be called the Toddle House. And it was, as my dad described, it was kind of like a Denny's. Um, and, and his first job was, was at that building, the same building, washing dishes at 50 cents an hour. I actually, I was in town this last weekend for the... Texas LSU game, oh. fabulous game, but heartbreaking. Um, and as I was driving to the game, I passed by the TCBY that's now the Toddle House. I took a picture of the back of it, texted it to my dad, said, recognize it. My dad said, the Toddle House. He said, 300 eggs a day. That's the story of Texas. That's the story of America. So I agree when it comes to engaging on issues, and let me give you one final example. We'll wrap up on this. this is a good point to wrap up in. Um, back Fourth of July, again on Twitter. Um, Colin Kaepernick sent out this Fourth of July a, a tweet, and it was a quote from Frederick Douglass. That was quote, "What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? The Fourth of July is yours, not mine." There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Frederick Douglass. 
So that was the tweet. And, and much like with Alyssa Milano, I could have ignored it. But I didn't want to. And so I engaged again in a, in a multiple response on Twitter. And, and my response, I said, look, you quote a mighty and historic speech by the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass. But without context, many modern readers will misunderstand. Two critical points. Number one, this speech was given in 1852, before the Civil War, when the abomination of slavery still existed. And thanks to Douglas and, and to so many other heroes, we ended that grotesque evil and have made enormous strides towards protecting the civil rights of everybody. Number two, Douglas was not anti-American. He was rightly and passionately anti-slavery. Indeed, he concluded his speech as follows, quote, Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began, with hope, while drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions. My spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. And I ended that series of tweets by saying, let me encourage everyone to, in all caps, read the entire speech. It is powerful, inspirational, and historically important in bending the arc of history towards justice. Look, if you have today some young kid who sees a tweet from Colin Kaepernick that has Frederick Douglass appearing to say, I don't celebrate the 4th of July because America's terrible. If that's all they know, they end up very confused and with a wrong picture of the history. Yes, our nation is a flawed nation, as any assemblage of human beings is a flawed assemblage of human beings. But the beauty of the Declaration and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is that it provided an avenue and set us on a journey to vindicating those wrongs. And that's a principle I think we should be celebrating. So I want to encourage you, every one of you, you don't have to be a federal judge. You don't have to be a member of Congress. You don't have to be an elected office. Every one of you has a platform and a voice to speak about the power of freedom and the power of justice. And this is a time when voices speaking the truth are sorely, sorely needed. And I'm grateful for your commitment to doing so. Thank you. Federal Society, uh, well, the Federal Society uh, inaugurated this Greg Coleman lecture series last year. Uh, I'd like to think that Greg is uh, watching and, and very pleased with the first two years of this uh, new institution. Uh, last year, we had the profound honor of having a conversation between Leonard Leo 
and Justice Thomas uh, this year. Senator, thank you for being the second.